Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, I'm Janet French, and this is the Press Gallery. Before we get to today's show, just a reminder to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave us a rating and a review, and it would really help us out. Enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's Alberta Politics Podcast. It's Friday, November 29th, 2019, and this is episode 300. Woo! Woo! Is this the This Is Sparta episode? <laughs> oh, Wait, yeah. Is there some crazy <laughs> war movie? I was wondering why Keith was stripped down to the loincloth. <laughs> no, it's just how I dress on Fridays. What are, what are you talking about? Loincloth Friday, yeah. yeah. Casual Friday. Friday exactly. Boy, Thursday, Purple Shirt Thursday has gone really out of control. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's try that again. This is episode 300, the nice, cool freeze edition. I'll explain that in a minute. I'm your host, Janet French. With me today in studio are the Daves that I know, some of them. Uh, Keith, sorry, you have to leave. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I still get a cupcake, right? Uh, Of course, of course. (laughs) David Staples is in front of me. Hello, how are you? Hey, Janet, did you make those cupcakes? Of course I did. That's really sweet. Those would look good. Oh, thanks. Well, make sure you eat one. Oh, no, wait, you can't eat eat, like dairy and stuff, right? Okay, sorry. I can and I can't. It's a long story. Long story. The Jordan Peterson diet. Got it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, it's the the roundup they spray on the wheat in harvest, but I don't want to get into it because it's a bit of a, I'm not sure it's true. I don't believe that topic is on today's episode. (laughs) Next to him, another Dave I know, our managing editor, Dave Breckenridge. I'll eat David Staples' cupcake because I don't care what I put in my mouth. Sweet. Give me all the roundup. Extra roundup on Dave's cupcake. (laughs) Please, Monsanto, don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) And next to him is Keith Gerine, our legislature columnist. How are you? I'm doing well. And and I will eat a cupcake because, yeah, no shame whatsoever. I had a questionable leftover chicken sandwich for breakfast. This okay. morning, so yeah, yeah, that so sounds cupcake promising. Will be no problem. <laughs> Hashtag party like a journalist. Exactly. Yes, totally. <laughs> Hashtag all... Keith's glamorous life. <laughs> Loincloths and questionable chicken sandwiches. That's I'd me. watch that reality yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, the visuals! I am so sorry, listeners. <laughs> Anyway, as the temperature plummets, the UCP government continues to take some heat over the fallout of the firing of their election commissioner, Lauren Gibson. Maybe a little bit less cool this week were a couple of political moves by the NDP that invited a little bit of head scratching and worse. Um, But first, Frozen is not just for kids in movie theaters. The government is putting a freeze on new photo radar equipment and locations in Alberta. So there was, you may recall, under the previous NDP government, there was a lengthy photo radar study that was commissioned. Um, And man, we were asking about that thing every week and every month. Have you guys done the photo radar study yet? How about now? How about now? How about now? Finally, uh, they came out and said, "Um, yeah, we're not entirely sure that photo radar is 
improving safety or saving lives. So then the question, uh, once we had a new government, was, well, what are they going to do with this 170-page report and this very contentious issue? So uh, earlier this week, Transportation Minister Rick McIver said, um, yeah, even though we have this big report, we feel like the data from different municipalities isn't comparable enough to tell whether or not this is just a cash cow or whether it's saving lives. And so what they want all the municipalities to do, there's 27 that do use photo radar, is to collect data. They're going to talk about what they're going to, they're going to collect. And then they're all going to coll- be asked to collect it in the same way so that they can get a apples to apples provincial picture over whether fa- photo radar does improve safety. Uh, and he's also asking, of course, for those municipalities' input. Um, now, this is in contrast with what the NDP was saying when they were on their way out of government, which is that they planned to put the cash cow down humanely, and they were going to give cities one year to prove that this, in fact, was a safety measure and not a money-raising measure. And the deadline to try and provide that proof was going to be in March. So now I guess that deadline is maybe not does not exist anymore? It's a little unclear. Anyway... I believe that David Staples has some thoughts about photo radar. Uh, what what were you hoping to hear from the government on Tuesday? A little bit sterner rhetoric. I mean, I followed this debate long enough now. It's been I wrote my first column on it six years ago. That's when they changed the threshold when they started to give people uh, photo radar tickets for lower level speeding. Um, they moved it from 15K, which it had been forever, to 10K. And that's when you saw this huge increase in photo radar revenue in Edmonton from about $15 million a year, where there was no one really complaining about photo radar, to $50 million a year, where a bipartisan consensus developed that this was a cash cow. It's always interesting in Alberta politics when both sides of the aisle are saying the same thing because it's so rare. This was one of those issues where that happened. Over time, everyone got enough tickets that people were fed up. So you had not only Brian Mason using cash cow rhetoric, you had Jason Kenney using cash cow rhetoric, so both sides were using it. The interesting thing in McIver's press conference to me is that he wasn't using the cash cow. He was saying, well, some people are saying that, and this is a safety <laughs> issue. And then when people asked him, what do you think of these this? He's like, well, my constituents tell me they think, blah, like he was kind of deflecting the... His own opinion. He was, and he brought up the safety argument. So when you hear the safety argument, and I've heard it enough over the six years of this debate, you know nothing's going to change because that's the argument, of course, that stops anything from happening because safety is super important. The problem, the only problem with the safety argument is when you look at Edmonton compared to other cities, our same size that don't have photo radar like Ottawa, there's almost no difference in traffic um, accidents and traffic fatalities. So we have $50 million in, in fines essentially that aren't improving safety much compared to cities where they don't have photo radar at all. Nonetheless, because it's so much money, it's $220 million revenue across the province every single year. And that was two years ago, so how much is it now? It's probably similar, but I just don't see – I think the trend for governments in Canada is Edmonton isn't going to be the outlier that we're photo radar up the yin-yang way more than anybody else. I don't think we're going to be the outlier. I think cities like Toronto and all these other cities are going to see all that money and they're – Across Canada, they're going to move as aggressively as they can towards more photo radar. So we're going to actually become more of the norm. And I don't think anything's going to change here in Alberta. I, I was wondering about that because I remember in the budget there was there was talk that 
the province may take a larger cut of fine revenues. I would assume that would include photo radar. I was getting to that, and but, but yeah, go on. Go you on. know, so I'm I'm wondering if they've dialed down their re- rhetoric a bit because they're looking at photo radar as an opportunity to bring in more revenue to provincial coffers. I also wonder whether getting rid of this March 2020 deadline that Brian Mason had and pushing things down the road allows them later in their mandate to get a political win out of it. Because we know with the NDP, that report was done a few months before it was released and they released it as close to the election as I think they possibly could after being nagged by the media for months about it. Over Um, and over. And because it is in photo radar is an easy win. If you come out strong against photo radar, you'll get a lot of people say, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. That they don't like it. They feel it's a cash cow. They feel, as David says, there's not a great deal of evidence that Edmonton is any safer a city than jurisdictions where they don't have it. And if you can't prove that it makes our roads safer, all it becomes is a revenue generation tool. And is that like, I get the argument that says, well, if you don't want a photo radar ticket, don't speed. I understand that, right? Like we set rules and we say people shouldn't speed. But if the goal, as many people say, is safety, there are other ways to get people to slow down. Man traffic enforcement with stiffer fines and demerits, and even those flashing solar-powered signs that tells you how fast you're going and what the speed limit is, those will get you to slow down as well. I and love just those as things. well as photo radar. So the idea that, you know, the safety argument flies out the window and the question is, do we want a revenue generation tool to penalize people who are speeding? Yes or no. And the people the people who are in favor of photo radar need to come out and say that. It has been kind of interesting uh, over the past year to see the NDP and the the Conservatives trying to kind of outdo each other in terms of rhetoric. I'm tougher on photo radar. No, I'm tougher on photo radar. Uh, when Brian Mason came out with his report uh, back in the spring, um, that was uh, seemed quite tough, and and it was seemed like it was going going after municipalities quite hard and, and imposing a pretty hard standard on them. We went to Jason Kenny that same day or the day after, and he says, "Oh, I'm going to get even tougher. I'm going to be even bigger on this." Uh, and then you're right, Dave David Stables, to see Brian. <laughs> there's two Daves in here. I have to be specific. Um, to see uh, the new transportation minister, Rick McIver's press conference, uh, he really dialed it back. That was not what I was expecting from that press conference at all. Uh, and I think uh, Dave Breckenridge is right that there is a, uh, I think the fundamental principle here that we do need to use this tool for safety, not to uh, to penalize people, not to uh, to as a revenue collection, although I see the temptation of it. Uh, I do wonder about one thing, though, and that is that this provincial budget is cutting municipalities pretty hard. We've already heard in Calgary, for example, that they are going to have to reduce uh, police officers. May That may happen in Edmonton. Does that mean fewer police on the streets enforcing traffic? And in that case, does photo radar become a potentially more useful tool if it's used in the right place? But we have to, we have to find out where it, those most effective places are, if there are any. And so I don't actually hate what the government is doing here. I think a a better study, because the, the last study um, that the NDP did, I didn't think was adequate. So if we can actually get a better stat, study here, get better data, and determine once and for all whether this is actually having any effect on traffic safety or not, uh, that I think is actually a good thing. And the traffic safety data in the, it was Myers-Norris Penny that did that previous study under the NDP government, um, it 
it just came up with correlations. So, I mean, correlation is not causation, right? They're saying, well, the locations of photoradar were associated with a one-point-something decline in fatalities, but if there's only 27 municipalities and there's only X number of photoradar sites, is that a large enough sample size to be statistically significant? Sorry, I'm nerding out on this. Um, <laughs> moving on. So, <laughs> Well, I think they just compared it to, I, I think the, f- the focus of their study was to compare cities that had it with those that don't. And they weren't trying to look so much at specific sites, but no, but I, I could be wrong. But I think the study, I mean, we're not, when you got into it, there was a lot of math real quick. And I think it was, most of us are not qualified. I'm not qualified to talk on how scientifically valid that study was, but it sounded like just the way they explained it, we're comparing cities with photorator to those without, that seemed like a reasonable way to go about it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so as uh, Dave Breckenridge mentioned, uh, there also is a bill before the legislature right now that makes many changes to municipalities and municipal funding. And one of the things it does is it gives the provincial government a higher cut of prevent- of fine revenue from municipalities. So before they used to take 27% of fine revenue from cities. And they said that the justification for that was that we can use it. We need that money because we administer the fine collection program. So we need it to cover our costs. Um, now they're going to up that to 40% if this bill passes. So, of course, the NDP opposition says, well, of course, they're not going to put down the cash cow. Like, they're getting more of the cash because, um, you know, while while the government argues that it has, the uh, Alberta has a spending problem, some people would argue that Alberta has a revenue problem. So um, is it is it that they just can't give up any potential source of, well, of revenue I'm, that they might I mean, it's a long, a long standing argument around the sales tax in Alberta and you have conservative leaning economists who feel that a sales tax is a better form of taxation, but the argument goes that then they have to turn around and lower your income tax, but no government in their right mind would turn around and lower income taxes because they like money. Like governments, governments, what? governments aren't keen to get rid of a source of income. The other thing I was just wondering, as we've been talking about this and the idea that the province is taking a bigger cut of fine revenue is could delaying the removal or or putting it off indefinitely of photo radar in Alberta be kind of a trade-off for the cities? And the province comes and says, yeah, we're going to take 13, 13 points more revenue. Like an olive branch. For, yeah, like, yeah. But we'll let you have photo radar because that's yeah. good for us, but it also lets you keep money in your pocket. Could <sighs> that be what's going on? I don't well, know if that's what's going on, but it kind of, the thought popped into my head as we were talking about the idea of the province taking a bigger share of uh, fine revenue. I don't know. The, Don Iveson seemed pretty skeptical about that. He, don't you think? Y- yeah. I, there's, if you're taking the profit, there's a huge incentive to keep those profits coming in. And I mean, the clearest evidence of this was when the police used to run the photo radar in Edmonton until 2012. And um, the second the city took over, this who gets the money, the revenues tripled. So, um, you know, was that all about safety or did they suddenly see a huge source of, of revenue? Because at the same time, they had just switched over their photo radar process and there had been huge cost overruns, $50 million. The city had a huge black eye looking to wait, a way to get out of that pickle financially and propaganda PR-wise. So I think anytime the government is uh, getting revenue, of course, they're going to be loath to give it up. And I see, I think it's 
I think that could be a real motive for the Conservatives not to do anything on this. Mm -hmm. Tangentially, why did the city of Edmonton lower the buffer from 15 kilometers an hour to 10? Because I've well, I've you're gotten... going to get them started now. Okay, no, I, well, I have it's... been the un well... unwitting recipient of a photo radar ticket in a school zone when I realized it was well, the wrong hours and I went 42 kilometers an hour because I was accelerating and the supercar was there. And, ah! You see, when they brought in photo radar in the, in the 90s, the argument was we're not going after just people who creep up over the speed limit. The idea is we want to go after the reckless speeders, the people who are really speeding. And a I did a story on it at the time. A police officer said that, made it clear. We are only go we're setting the, the threshold at 15K over because we only want to go over, get those uh, reckless speeders. And if they had, there would be no debate in Alberta if they had not changed that, but they have changed it. And the argument is that um, every kilometer per hour over the speed limit leads to greater and more dangerous Kills accidents. Kills a child even more splattery. Yeah, but it's not a, you know, there's been studies done on this and I think that the, I think the fifth, in terms of a safety argument, I think the 15K was, was defensible. Certainly 10K is definitely defensible. Anything below 10K over the speed limit is, is I think a real overreach, but I would, if they said it at 15K, this debate would be over. That would be the best move they could make. I, th I think Dave's right. The way that the city of Edmonton handled this when they they changed the threshold for giving a ticket. Secretly. Uh, secretly. That was the big thing. They didn't tell anyone they were doing it. And all of a sudden, these thousands and thousands of more tickets came out. I think that has badly contributed to the public's disappointment with this particular tool uh, and, and suspicion of it. And uh, I, I think the city of Edmonton can maybe look to see... Um, why the government is is now uh, reviewing this with a um, uh, a little more of a uh, a keen sense of, of proving that this is actually a traffic safety tool, not just a revenue collection tool. I think the city of Edmonton is uh, needs to look in the mirror a bit on that one. I'm going to move on uh, to something a little less civic and a little more inside the domish. Um, some interesting things happened on Tuesday in particular this week when it comes to the NDP opposition. Maybe it's just that the session is getting a bit long. It's been a grueling year with a provincial election. We've had two sittings already. We're at Bill 29 in about seven months, six months. Uh, the legislature has been sitting into the night, so some of these people are working very long hours. Um, so maybe they're getting a little, a little off. I don't know. Um, so one of the interesting things that happened this week was that on Tuesday, NDP culture critic Nicole Gehring accused the Ministry of Culture, Multiculturalism and Status of Women of purchasing $35,608.77 in liquor from Prestige Liquor, which was noteworthy to them because the owner of Prestige Liquor is a UCP donor and was, uh, I think, a Jason Kenney delegate or a supporter of Jason Kenney's during the 2017 UCP leadership race. Um, and it, it turns out there, if that sounds indefensible, it act, there was actually a good reason why they bought $35,000 worth of liquor. We'll get to that. Uh, also on Tuesday, um, one of the NDP's most notoriously outspoken, uh, MLAs, Marlon Schmidt, he's my MLA, by the way. Hey, Marlon. <laughs> uh, he had to apologize for his remarks four times, um, after saying things like calling the UCP the incel caucus and, uh, accused an a UCP MLA of making light of a story he was telling about indigenous slavery on sugar beet farms. And he said the 
agriculture and forestry minister stood up on his hind legs uh, during the first day of the CN rail strike demanding uh, back-to-work legislation. <laughs> and when he redrew, withdrew his remarks, um, you can decide if this is apologetic or not. He said, yes, Mr. Speaker, I apologize and withdraw. The next time, I'll say that he stood on his front legs. Jason Nixon is a bear-like and was he talking about Jason? No, Nixon? he's talking about Devin Dreeshen. Oh, Devin Dreeshen. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was talking about the large. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm gesticulating wildly he's, here. He Jason is. Jason Nixon a lot is a tall arms. man. Sorry, Dre- Devin Dreeshen does not look like an animal. I'm not saying that, that Jason Nixon animals. looks like an animal. Anyway, this took I, an interesting Marlon day. really did not. <laughs> where are we going? Marlon really did not like that farm safety legislation to repeal some of the bill sex changes. Uh, and also on Tuesday, Keith uh, watched a public accounts committee meeting, which <laughs> went quite off the rails. Uh, so let's maybe start there. T- tell us what happened to this public accounts committee oh, meeting in man. a way that's totally not uh, bureaucratic. Right. Good luck. So, okay. Yeah. So this this uh, relates to the the firing of the election commissioner, Lauren Gibson, through Bill 22 and the NDP trying to do anything they can to kind of draw public attention to it. And so one of the things that they've tried to do um, is through the Public Accounts Committee. That is the only committee chaired by an NDP member, happens to be finance critic Shannon Phillips. And you may remember last week, one of the things she did is she said, I am not going to hold public accounts meetings anymore until we hear from the election commissioner, Lauren Gibson. Uh, and she called for an emergency agenda change to hear from him. Well, this turned out to be an empty threat because the UCP members on the Public Accounts Committee just ignored her request. Gibson was fired as of last Friday, so he couldn't appear before the committee. Uh, And the next committee meeting turned out to be Tuesday. So the NDP tried to essentially shut down the meeting in a a very strange way. They made a point of privilege, the members there, to say that they had been kind of blocked in their duties, obstructed in in their duties to hear from the commissioner. Uh, and Shannon Phillips, the chair, uh, said, well, somebody's raised a point of privilege, so the proper procedure here is to just adjourn the meeting so that the privilege matter can be heard from or can be dealt with. Well, turns out she didn't exactly have her procedure correct. Uh, the clerk informed her, no, she had to put that motion to the floor. And the UCP, which holds a majority on that committee, said, no, we're not going to deal with the privilege motion. Now we're going to continue the meeting. So the NDP's strategy after that was to kind of waste time uh, by making amendments and talking to the motion. And they wound up wasting about two-thirds of the meeting with repetitive motions and amendments. Uh, and the, the poor health officials from AHS and the health ministry who were sitting there and had taken time out of their schedule basically got no time to be interviewed or to talk about things going on in the health ministry. So whether the NDP actually made their point or not, um, I was a little skeptical. I think they came across as a bit more uh, bumbling than they uh, than they intended at this point. Is this like, I don't know if it's a filibuster per se. It's maybe a little bit obstructive. Like how often do you <laughs> see of. a filibuster-like thing happen at a legislative committee? Yeah, it doesn't happen often. This was, this was a new one for me. And honestly, the Public Accounts C- Committee is more for the opposition. That's their attempt or their chance to kind of attack and and make points and ask questions of government ministries. Uh, And instead, they kind of ate into their own time. Uh, I I, (laughs) I just didn't quite understand what they were doing there. Interesting. So the liquor, it turns out, back to the liquor. Uh, So so Nicole Gehring brought up this point about the $35,000 worth of liquor in question period. And the look on on, uh, Minister Leela here's face was just like, Huh? <laughs> what do you normally like ministers are prepped for for issues that they might expect. This one she just was like I don't know what 
in hell you're talking about. Um, and it turned out to be a, a purchase contract for a restaurant at the Royal Alberta Museum where they sell the liquor to patrons like for resale, maybe for a profit even. Uh, and it turns out that the ministry had even used prestige liquor as a supplier during the last few months of the NDP government. I, you know, I, awkward. <laughs> this is one of those things. It was bound to happen at some point. The the NDP, you know, people have talked about, and to be in a way that's trying to be critical of the government, of them trying to do too much to make everyone's head spin. But the opposition is as guilty of that as the, as the government, as they've tried to churn out a new controversy every day and pile on. And sometimes you can't keep straight who's talking about what some days. And so it was bound to happen that they were going to hit a bad week or hit a dud. <laughs> and the liquor one was the worst because, you know, as soon as you turn around and say, yeah, the museum was using this supplier last November when the NDP was in power, it's just egg all over their face. And then even on top of that, there were NDP supporters on social media this week who were saying, why does the museum need to spend that much on booze? It's just all school trips and stuff. It's like, well, no, facilities like that hold events. Like the art, art gallery of Alberta constantly has people coming through there for yoga and cocktails and little soirees, Tell weddings, me more about weddings, yoga and yeah. cocktails. I don't know if they're together. one in the same, but this, <laughs> but yeah, like the f cultural facilities like that host groups and host events all the time. And it was just hilarious to watch uh, uh, all these people who had dug in that this was another element of UCP corruption try to dig themselves out of their hole, but wound up digging themselves even further. It was just, it was kind of hilarious to watch. It, it was also damaging, uh, not just hilarious, because the NDP had been putting a lot of pressure and, and generating a lot of public attention on, on Bill 22. Not that any of their moves were effective at stopping the government, but I, they, I think they had raised considerable awareness. And when they threw this dud with the liquor out, uh, it just allowed the UCP to change the channel. There we have Jason Kenney on Twitter <laughs> taking a trip to Prestige Liquor with a nice box of holiday libations and uh, saying, hey, just stop by this great liquor spot that I heard about today for the totally first time random. ever. Yeah. Totally random. Yeah, they're open late. <laughs> what great service here, right? And it's just totally mocking them, right? And a bit of a cheap political shot, but hey, um, they kind of deserved it and... It's, you know, it, it took away the attention from, I think, the the bigger issues. And that, to me, is was the NDP's problem with all of this stuff, is they need to focus on the priorities. They need to focus on the things that are actually making uh, a dent uh, in, in this government's uh, popularity with its base. And, uh, boy, that didn't, that did not help. Yeah, it, we talked, you know, we've talked last, or I've mentioned a couple times on this, on this podcast about how the UCP has had a series of own goals. And it, you know, it doesn't help them move their agenda forward. The same is true with the NDP. This just is kind of like Marlon Schmidt's outbursts don't do them any favors with centrist voters who may not be big fans of the UCP, but aren't necessarily UCP supporter, NDP supporters, um, trying to, I know not many Albertans pay attention to committees other than us nerds, but even, you know derailing the committee that they control the majority of. It just doesn't, it's not a good look on a party that was up until the spring, the government. I don't understand what they're playing at or why they think that some of these things are going to win them any points. You know, sometimes when the government, when a government agency like the Royal Alberta Museum buys liquor, it's just because they need liquor and it's not to, there's no politics attached to it. And I think 
the NDP's problem here is that they, they're trying to politicize everything. Everything's political. Everything's political. People are tired of that. So this kind of gaffe really highlighted that. The NDP is strong when they're strong on the economy. Rachel Notley did some good things, you know, in terms of the getting setting um, oil patch policy right in the province. She should stick to that. She should be the same sensible voice of how we can develop a consensus in Canada about getting the oil patch going again. That's her strength. And when they start like this insult comment, like, who says that? You know, aren't we supposed uh, to Schmidt. leave people's <laughs> Apparently. sexuality out of politics? This is really offensive to people that, you know, you bring up comments like this. This is just ridiculous. And someone on the left should know that as much as anyone that this kind of thing is out of bounds. So when when they when they start to stray into into these areas they get off their strength which was becoming a real strength for not least standing up for alberta's economy i think they get into trouble with albertans and uh they'd be wise to think about that yeah uh in interesting times although i think like is it just opposition oppositioning you know, it sort of doesn't matter which party is in opposition in whatever province I've been in. They're always like, ah, fire, yeah, brimstone, they outrage, are just, fist, sh- I'm yeah. shaking my fists around. They are in- just doing their job. Yeah, they're doing their job. That's for sure. And that's part of it. And, you know, on the 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 one big mistake that I think Kenny has made, I don't think anything, all, of all these scandals that we've heard in the last year with Kenny, I don't think any of them have stuck at all, except for him as Dave put it, the own goal of firing the election commissioner. I think anytime you're being investigated for something and then you fire the person investigating you, that starts to look bad to everybody on both sides of the aisle. That was a mistake by Kenny. They've got to fix it, frankly. And until they do, they they have a problem there. So there has been one mistake outside of the economy. Like people don't care in Alberta right now about anything except the economy. So the NDP trying to raise all these other issues, there's no uptake on it because people are really suffering. This is one though that I think is outside of that because it's just a it's a very simple thing. You fired the guy investigating you. Everyone can understand that. It's really simple. And Kenny made a mistake there that he's got to fix. Good segue, because that is in fact the next thing we are talking about. You just did my job for me. Thumbs up. Um so you know, the the government does still seem to be getting a chilly reception. Uh speaking of freezing. From uh from their rapid move last week to dismiss Lauren Gibson. Um, he, of course, levied hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of election finance violation fines against people who were involved with the 2017 UCP leadership race. Uh, but the question now and the thing that that everybody's been grappling with this week is like, what does it mean now for the ongoing investigations? Who's actually in charge of these things? Is work happening on them? Is work happening with the same um, tenacity? Who's in charge around here? Do we name people who are involved? And the naming issue was was what became apropos this week, I suppose. It turns out uh, on Tuesday, and I still don't understand why this happened the way it did. um, Elections Alberta, before there was an election commissioner as of mid-2018, they used to do investigations into... um, election financing violations. And so they had actually started some already before the election commissioner took over. And so suddenly when this responsibility reverted back to Elections Alberta this week, um, this these three descriptions of different penalties suddenly appeared in a chart on their website um, from investigations that predated the, the commissioner. And the weird thing about them was that there were no names attached to them. 
So it was, it was a description of, of the violations and the fines levied and where the case was at and the, a time scale. But there was no no names, which was a deviation from the way that the election commissioner dealt with that issue. Uh, the election commissioner had a chart that would say the person's name or the company's name, the entity's name that committed the violation, then the amount of the fine or what kind of penalty was levied, and a brief description of what what transpired to prompt this. Uh, and so that that raised some questions. And the way we found out about this is because it, it got out that last week, conservative organizer Alan Hallman, um, who managed Premier Jason Kenney's by-election campaign in Calgary Lougheed, uh, he ended up in court appealing one of these fines. But we didn't know that from the Elections Alberta website because Alan Hallman was not named on the website. So we had this case out there of an alleged elections violation that had no record attached to it anywhere on the election commissioner or the Elections Alberta's website, which was pretty confounding, which raised the question, are we just not naming people who break the law anymore? And why? Why would we change that? Um, which, of course, prompted the NDP to allege that the Kenny government was now withholding the names of people facing penalties. That might have been a bit of a stretch because this is a, a decision that lies with Elections Alberta, which is an independent office of the legislature. Um, and it turned out that was not quite right. What happened was because these investigations were already ongoing, they Elections Alberta was using this old policy to decide. So there was there was much much fretting, much ado about cover-ups and secrecy, um, <laughs> and um, and uh, conspiracy and all that good stuff that we see online. And uh, so yesterday, Elections Alberta came out and said, "Okay, we've reviewed this very very quickly, and we've decided we will." in fact, publish the names of the people who have committed election law violations and the details and any details that the election commissioner would have made public, we will also make public. And then they reissued this chart with the names installed, including Alan Holman. Um, how well did Elections Alberta handle this situation? Well, I mean, they came to the right decision in the end. This is just an example. I know people, again, trying to raise the the stench of conspiracy and cover-up and all that sort of stuff. This is just further proof how opaque government can be and how their uh, interpretations of FOIP law, um, freedom of information law, is not always in line with what the public may want in terms of transparency. And this is, you know, we saw this under uh, Edmonton Police Service, uh, under the previous uh, Chief Rod Connect, uh, who... It wasn't his decision, but the information he was that the police force said they were getting from their in-house counsel, saying that you know to release names of homicide victims would violate privacy laws, and in some cases, unless there unless there was an investigative reason to release the name. Uh, but under the new chief, he's turned around and said, "No, we gotta, we want to be more transparent." But so that's what this elections Alberta thing reminds me of is that. Uh, bureaucratic lawyers who have a very strict reading of uh, freedom of information laws saying, uh, don't do that, erring, erring too much on the side of caution. And and I think that when Lauren Gibson was appointed election commissioner, he had a different view of that. It was a different time. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I mean, you know, they put names up on the election commissioner's website for people who were found in violation of election laws. Um but you couldn't get them for an interview. There were no more, there were no details in, it was just names, uh, kind of what the, a brief one sentence of what the offense was and the fine. But there and was whether no other they details. paid it or not. Yeah. So, I mean, baby steps here, people. Yeah. 
And actually, Elections Alberta, I think, has said they're even considering whether they should go further than the election commissioner. Were you about to say that, Keith? Yeah, no, <laughs> and I, I would I would encourage them to do that. I think one of the frustrations that we saw under Lauren Gibson is that while he did produce more information, um, it still wasn't a whole lot to put the pieces together. What we have learned about the the UCP leadership mess um, has largely come from Lauren Gibson, but we still don't have a lot of uh, a lot of the connecting pieces to understand what actually went on there. And that's because the election commissioner has taken the legislation um, to to mean that he is subject to very strict non-disclosure rules. And I think the NDP is probably kicking themselves at this point that they didn't change the legislation when they had a chance to allow him to more openly discuss his cases or post more information. Um, I don't think the UCP is going to have much interest in changing the legislation now, but perhaps um, the chief electoral officer will take a hard look at that and see if there is perhaps more that the the public can know about a particular case, because there does seem to be an interest in that. I wonder, though, if this is an impossible situation for Elections Alberta. I mean, they basically, Bill 22, which which terminated the election commissioner um, and moved that office underneath Elections Alberta, was introduced on a Monday, passed by Thursday, and had royal assent by Friday. And uh, so basically, Election Alberta had maybe four days notice that they were, unless they had some sort of tip-off internally, that they were going to be taking over the function of another office. I doubt it. You doubt yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, I don't, so I doubt they were. Well, I mean, Lauren Gibson himself didn't know about the legislation until it was introduced. So I, 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 I don't. I, I think it's unlikely that uh, Glenn Ressler knew about the legislation before uh, for his uh, predecessor. So. Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult situation. They've been having to deal with this on the fly. They've uh, suddenly got five new employees. They have to get caught up on all the cases. And they made a fairly quick decision here. Like their review of deciding whether or not to post names, uh, I think it took only about 24 hours, right? So there was a a kind of a difficult 24-hour period there where there there was some negative stories about how this was going to go. But then they they came to the right decision pretty quickly, um, got some legal advice by the sounds of it, and, and, and came to a good conclusion. That only gets us so far, right? This is this is now, I think, being framed by a lot of people as saying, uh, well, see, we told you that uh, all these investigations would continue and nothing would change and there's no conspiracy here. Well, let's let's be clear. We're, we're now, we've posted some names, but we still don't know how those investigations are going to go, whether the Glenn Ressler is going to hire a commissioner position, who that commissioner is going to be, and whether the investigations are actually going to proceed in the way that they have been in the past. That, I think, is still the big question, not necessarily whether we have names to see. And part of that will be decided later today, or at least the beginning of that decision will happen later today. There is a meeting where all the independent legislative officers will go before a committee and present their budgets, including Glenn Ressler. <laughs> oh, the timing. It's amazing. Uh, Lauren Gibson was supposed to present today. Sorry, Lauren, you're out. But Ressler will go. And apparently, uh, Elections Alberta said yesterday he will be asking for the budget to continue for to do both functions, uh, to maintain all the investigation positions and the investigations, which is super interesting because one of the justifications for this whole drama is that it's going to save money. It's supposed to save money to have one office, not two offices doing this work. So if he's just asking for the same budget, where's the alleged $1 million savings over five years? Rhetorical question. I don't know. Very good question. Thanks. That's why I'm they I'm sure pay me. the NDP will be asking that as well. I'm sure. <laughs> I am very pumped about this meeting this afternoon. We'll see what happens. Anyway, for the interim, we have some things for you to read or consume for fun. Uh, 
David Staples, what do you have to recommend for our listeners to have a gander at this week? Uh, well, I'm a big podcast guy. Uh, it's really great when you're doing the dishes and, you know, cleaning the floors, shoveling the walks. <laughs> uh, you can multitask, listen to yeah, uh, feed with your you. head. And so the my favorite podcast uh, over time has is always this been- one. Is this one? Is been the press gallery. And, and number two <laughs> on the list is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Fantastic history buff. And he's been doing a fantastic um, series on Japan and the Second World War leading up to the Second World War. How the fanatical, the absolutely fanatical uh, ideology that um, uh, animated Japan in that war took over that country. And he's now on part three. It's called Supernova in the East. Part three just came out. So there's probably like 15 hours you can listen to um, How many dishes so far. do you have? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things that keeps me away from Dan Carlin is the daunting. He has like daunting. five kids. Five hours of, of oh, kids. Man. And I got, I walk to work sometimes when I, when I do come to the office. And uh, yeah, no, I live, there's, you know, I can easily find a couple hours a day to, of housework to listen to podcasts <laughs> to. Dave Breckenridge, what do you have for us? <laughs> um, I have something that is much, much shorter than an episode of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. It's not a podcast, though it is something to listen to. I've been spending a lot of time recently listening to a lot more music than I have. I've kind of taken a bit of a podcasting break. I have a lot of stuff in my queue on uh, my podcast app to listen to. But I'm going to recommend the new album by Beck. It's called Hyperspace. 25 years into his career, um, He's teamed up with Pharrell, producer Pharrell Williams for the first time. And it is just, you know, as Variety says, it's joyfully, joyfully introspective, minimalistic, but sophisticated, contagiously melodic, straight ahead, analog synth pop record. Wow. It's a delight to listen to it, you know, for someone who's 25 years into his career and he's changed his sound up numerous times. He sounds really fresh, really. It's a, it's just, it's about. 32, 35 minute long yeah, album. It's short. It's a great listen. Huh. I highly recommend it. Uh, I read a lot of good things this week, but my favorite was actually a series of stories from the Detroit Free Press who have done a great job covering this issue. Has anyone ever heard of the University of Farmington in Michigan? Of course. Who, who, who hasn't? Yeah. I mean, that Ivy League institution. It's fake. It's not real. It doesn't exist. And unbelievably, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency set up this fake university to lure people, immigrants, to the U.S. so they could bust them for immigration crimes. I'm speechless. Anyway, you should, you should read the latest story. There have been almost 250 students at this fake university now arrested for, anyway, uh, it's a thing. And uh, it's a fascinating um, technique used by, uh, by the U.S. government. Keith. <laughs> um, I'm going to go a little out of left field with this one. Uh, it's a opinion piece in Scientific American uh, titled, Scientists Should Stop Naming Species After Awful People. And so <laughs> there is this trend. Good luck with that. I know that plants, insects, newly discovered species, uh, sometimes scientists like to find a characteristic about it and then 
name it after somebody from history. And some of these folks from history are not particularly good. There's some, you know, bugs and and plants that are named after uh, people that committed atrocities against Native Americans, uh, a Confederate general um, that was, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty uh, profound uh, defender of slavery. There's even a beetle named after Adolf Hitler, who, which, which has apparently become a bit of a collector's item among neo-Nazis and has not been good for that beetle's survival. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit strange, right? Now, that goes back a ways. But anyway, not a trend that we should probably be uh, continuing here. Uh, but it is an interesting look at how these species are actually named and the process they use. That's really going to change the periodic table. It is. Yeah. Huh. They're doing it to be funny. The scientists, they think it's a joke. Is that uh, it, it may be funny, but I think they actually look at a characteristic of that bug or plant and say, oh, that's like this historical figure in one respect. And so it's – but kind of ignoring the the moral implications of it. It's not enough to just publish your stuff in a peer-reviewed journal anymore. You got to like – you got to go for maximum exposure. By making a controversial link. I don't yes. know. I yeah, don't no, know. that is definitely part of it. Is it? Yes. Okay, interesting. Well, that is all the time we have for today. If you've got any feedback, you can email me at jfrench at postmedia.com or tweet at me at jantafrench on Twitter. Join us next week for another episode of The Press Gallery. 